Doesn't that make you want to dance? Ah, I wish I could dance, because then I would be like, not just, just I could do this. Oh, don't make me break out the running, man. All right. One man's trash is another man's treasure. You ever heard that idiom before? All right. Um, my wife uh, was invited. Uh, I don't see Sharia. I see David. Uh, David's wife, Sharia, is uh, she's a, a thrift store junkie, and she's got like mad fashion sense. Uh, so she and her sisters, like, they love to go thrift store shopping. Uh, uh, they, they find sweet fashions and deals and things like that. And uh, every now and then, they'll, like, throw a party for some of their girlfriends. They'll come over. They'll just be like, hey, bring whatever clothes that you're not really wearing anymore. And they just do kind of like this clothes swap thing. And uh, they were talking about uh, just some of their favorite thrift store finds that they've ever found. And it made uh, me think back to when uh, I was on a missions trip with some of my students when I was a middle school pastor years ago, and we would go down to this place uh, called uh, Hazel Green, Kentucky, and Hazel Green had, uh, it was this tiny town that was quite poor, uh, but they had a thrift store um, that people from some of the other surrounding towns would just bring stuff in, and this place was like old, like it had like old stuff, which is the best place to go thrift store shopping, you know what I'm saying? Like, you don't want that, and you're like, sometimes I go into Goodwill these days, and I'm like, it's like brand new, like, I don't want brand new stuff, I want stuff from like 20, 30 years ago, let me find a sweet pair of Z Cavaricci jeans, you know what I'm saying, like, something, ah, you know what I'm talking about. Well, this place had like really, really old stuff, and all kinds of just crazy things, and a lot of times, it would be like just a big box of clothes, like, it wasn't even on, on hangers, like, you just had to like look through boxes of clothes, and, and they had on Wednesdays, uh, I can't remember if it was five bucks or one buck, uh, but basically you could fill a bag. I think it was for a dollar. Uh, you, you got a, you know, like a normal grocery bag and you could just fill it and whatever you could put in it was a buck. All right. I remember I was going through uh, this box and I found, this is my favorite thrift store find, I found a full length men's Burberry trench coat, like legit Made in London Burberry trench coat. I was like, this, they had a little stain on it. I was like, this thing is dope. I got that and like three other shirts for a buck. All right? It was pretty amazing. Now, I, I, I found myself after six months and not having worn it once. I sold it on eBay for like 150 bucks. I was pretty excited about myself. Uh, that, what is your favorite thrift store find? Go ahead and turn to the person next to you. Share with them what your best thrift store find has ever been. All right, all right. You guys are getting a little too excited about this. Like I, I'm seeing people smiling and laughing. And so why do we sometimes throw out things that other people want? Why do we sometimes throw out things that other people want? It's an issue of value, right? right we value or don't value what somebody else values or doesn't value. 
So I want to ask us a question. We're going to do a little audience participation. Uh, what do we value as a society? What do we value as a society? This is an all play, so throw stuff out. What do we value as a society? <laughs> Some. <laughs> you do. <laughs> Pastor's kid, right there. Jesus, he says. Yeah, what else? What? Status. Status, okay. Money. Cars. Cars. Power. Health. Health, yes. Did somebody say time? Time. Image. Image. Freedom. Freedom. Career. Family. Yeah, there's a lot of things that we value as a society, right? And I don't think anything that was just talked about is necessarily bad. It's not inherently bad. Many of those things are actually really good. A lot of it has to do with how we utilize those things that we value, right? If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to open up to Philippians chapter 3 uh, this morning. Uh, we're going to be going through verses 1 through 14. Uh, I'm going to break it up as we go. The context that we've just come out of, uh, as you remember, Paul has written this letter to the church at Philippi. They were like his homeboys and homegirls. He loved them. He was so excited. Oh, if you need a Bobby, you can just raise your hand. We've got folks that are walking down. They would love to make sure that you get a Bobby. You can follow along with us. You can look it up in the table of contents. Corey, we got one right down here. No, that's okay. Thank you. Um, he writes this letter because he really likes the Philippians. Uh, he's excited. He wants to encourage them. He's so thankful for the ways that they have encouraged him by their generosity, by sending people to take care of his needs, look out for him. And uh, he wants to make sure that they know how much he loves them, how grateful he is. In fact, he's just finished talking about uh, the guy that they sent who almost died. He says he's super excited that he's going to get a chance to send him back. In fact, we think that he's actually the one who brings the letter. You see that in chapter 2, Epaphroditus. And uh, now Paul gets into chapter 3, and he says this. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. All right? Paul is always talking, in fact, a lot of people call this the letter of joy. Paul's always talking about rejoicing and being joyful and uh, in spite of his circumstances. Because remember, he's in jail when he's writing this. Uh, he's under house arrest in Rome. He has to actually rent a place that he has to pay for, for him to be there. And he's chained to a guard we expect probably most of the day. When he's talking about rejoicing, rejoice in the Lord. He says, it's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. In other words, he's shared what he's about to say to them next, previously. And he's like, yo, sometimes we need to hear it more than once, right? And we know that, right? Repetition is the mother of learning. Sometimes you're like, man, Torn, I feel like you just preached that message. Yeah, I probably did, and you probably needed to hear it again, all right? That's why, <laughs> uh, actually, it's probably because I needed to hear it again. Paul says the same thing. He's like, look, I've told you this before, but it's a safeguard for you. Like, I need to tell you again. Like, I'm not, I'm not ashamed to have to say the same thing again. And look what he goes on to say. Verse 2. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. Now, uh, 
in the English translation, they're, they're, it's hard for us to get the same level of kind of cultural understanding that Paul has in the original Greek and, and what he's saying. Like, this is some harsh, harsh words. Uh, you didn't call somebody a dog, all right, a, a, without it being incredibly offensive. Uh, Jews actually used to call Gentiles dogs. And back then it wasn't like, you know, your husky that you've got its own Instagram page for, okay? It's not like those kind of dogs, all right? Okay, it's not like little pookie that you dress up. Like these were the kind of dogs that literally like they were scavenging, they were mangy, they didn't ever go in nobody's house, they ran away from you, they didn't come up and line to get petted. Like these were like kind of nasty dogs, all right? You're like, I don't even know what that's like. Yeah, you don't. But that's like when he says dogs, don't think of the cute husky, all right? The little cockapoo or whatever it is that you're into. All right, think of like a mangy dog that's like a scare. Like this was not a good thing for him to say he's being harsh and he's being harsh on purpose and the reason that he's being harsh and calling them evildoers and mutilators of the flesh is because he wants the Philippians to know it's not about adding something to Jesus see that's what was happening there were folks we call them Judaizers they were called Judaizers people who were Jewish who would go around to the early churches and they would say, it's great that you follow Jesus. He's the Messiah, but you don't only need Jesus. You need Jesus and something else. You need Jesus and the law. And so if you truly want to be a part of God's family, you not only have to believe in Jesus, but you also have to observe the law, which means getting circumcised if you're a male. All those other things. So when he says they're mutilators of the flesh, it's because they're coming in and they're trying to tell Gentile Christians, hey, it's cool that you follow Jesus, but you need Jesus plus the law, plus getting circumcised. He's like, man, they're just out to like hurt you. That's not what you need. And so he calls them dogs. He calls them evildoers. And it's harsh language, way harsher than what we read when we kind of read this. You're like, well, that's a little bit mean. No, it was like, like smack you in the face kind of mean of what Paul was saying, but it was because the gospel was at stake. You see, anytime that you try to add something to the gospel, you actually neuter the gospel. It's no longer the good news anymore when it's something that you have to do alongside of it. The gospel has always been something that is by grace, through faith, in Christ, period, end of sentence, full stop. You can't do anything to earn it. It's not about how good you are, what you do. You see, we, uh, in our society, we, we often connect it to legalism as well, where it's like, well, it's the gospel, like it's Jesus, but there's some other things you need. Like, there's some things that you also need to know. Or uh, did you go to the right church? Were, were you baptized at the right age? Were you confirmed into the church? Sometimes we want to add things to salvation. And, and, and if we ever hear somebody saying that, if you ever hear me saying it's Jesus plus something, then I want you to come up and smack me. Like, maybe with words, not like your fist or anything, but like, you, like that's something you ought to fight over. Okay? The gospel, the good news is the fact that Jesus, and Jesus alone, by grace, through faith, there's nothing you can do to earn it. It's this free gift. And that's one of the questions we got to ask ourselves. Like, what are we going to do with our sin? If you're not, uh, 
if you're new to, to TLC, okay, maybe you, a friend invited you, um, maybe like this whole faith thing, this whole Jesus thing, this whole Christianity thing is like something you're checking out, you're not real sure, you kind of knew a little bit about it growing up, but now you're like, ah, I don't know. Like the one question that I think is one of the hardest questions for all of us to answer is what am I going to do with my sin? What, like what am I going to do with it? Uh, there, there's kind of this old school Christian question, uh, but I think is still incredibly valuable and valid. Uh, and it's simply this. Um, if you were to stand before God today, and God was to look at you and say, uh, why should I allow you to be with me in heaven? What would you say? And take, take a minute and just like rehearse that in your own head. If God were to be here right now and say to you, why should I let you be with me in heaven? What would you say? The, the Bible says that there is only one right answer. And the reason that Paul is so fired up on this particular issue is because it's not about anything that we do. It's about Jesus and Jesus alone. If your answer is Jesus, that's the right answer. I couldn't do anything about my own sin. I couldn't do anything to earn your favor, God. I simply proclaim that I trust in Jesus' death and resurrection. And the Father will say, Welcome, my daughter. <laughs> Welcome, my son. Come and spend eternity with me. Now, Paul kind of goes off for a minute, and then he's going to say, uh, those are the folks I want you to pay attention to. Don't let them get in and infiltrate and try to tell you that it's Jesus plus something else. And then he goes on and he says, we are actually the circumcision, which is a weird thing for us to hear in 21st century Grand Rapids, all right? Like, that's just kind of a strange thing. All Paul's point was is basically those who were circumcised uh, in the Old Testament were part of God's covenant people. And he says, it's not about physical circumcision anymore. It's about a circumcision of the heart, spiritual circumcision. It's basically saying we are spiritually now part of that covenant, the new covenant that was made in Jesus' blood. He's like, yo, we're the people of the covenant. We are the family of God. And then he goes on and he gives three ways that you can identify the people of God, what they actually do, okay? I'm going to come back to those in just a minute. Let's continue reading in verses 4 through 6. Because Paul's like, well, I'll read the three things. He says, uh, we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. And then in verse 4 he says, Though I myself have reasons for such confidence. In other words, look, man, if anybody's going to be confident in what they've done, like, I got reason to be confident. He's going to go on and he's going to brag for a second. If someone else thinks they have reason, reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I got more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He's like, yo, man, like, I am from, like, the... The pure blood, Hebrew, like I'm like the tribe of, the elite tribe of Benjamin. Like I was circumcised on the eighth day. Like I'm like all of that. I, I did uh, 23andMe, the, the DNA thing, like uh, a, a few months ago. Brenda got it for me. And like I'm dark complected, right? Like I don't fit in West Michigan, like perfect. Like I'm not tall and blonde 
you know, like I wish I was. Or, okay, like, at least tall. Like, I'm like, Lord, come on, three more inches? Why well, I always got to lie and say I'm, when people ask my height, like, I'm 5'8", five, 5'9". Five, no, you're not. <laughs> With lifts in, maybe. So I took 23andMe, and I was like, there must be something in my background, right? Like, I knew I had some German and some English, and, and I was like, but I bet there's something, like, really exotic and fun and cool. And it came back, and I was like, 80-some percent Northern European. Like, and then, like, I had a little bit of German. And uh, then the shocker of all, the thing that I was the most angry about ever since I moved to West Michigan, like, I'm always like, I'm the Dutch, pfft, the Dutch, pfft. Don't like the Dutch. I'm obviously not Dutch. Turns out I'm 8% Dutch. <laughs> been making fun of the Dutch the last 20 years. Now I realize I've been making fun of myself. Well, I went, I went to, uh, to my wife, and I was like, babe, we got to get this for you. Like, we got to take this for you. So uh, my wife's Filipino, and uh, her last name was Inyong. Okay, Inyon. Onion with an eye, all right? It was very, very Spanish. Now, Spain ruled over the Philippines for like 400 years. She's got this Spanish last name. I'm thinking to myself, like, she's going to have something fun. Like, I didn't have anything fun, all right? Uh, 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 but she's going to have something fun. There's going to be something back. Hers came back. Uh, we just got it this past week. And literally, it was one category. She literally is 100% Filipino. That's it. There's nothing, <laughs> nothing else, all right? Total, complete purebred Filipino woman right there, nothing else in the pot. Uh, uh, um, that's what Paul's saying. He's like, yo, like if anybody could brag, like I can trace my roots right back, all the way back to Abraham, like the OG. <laughs> the OH, original Hebrew maybe, I don't know. But he's like all the way, he's like, I'm, like if anybody could brag, I could brag. There isn't anything else back there. And then he's going to go on and say, it's not just about my ethnic history. It's not just about the fact that I come straight from Abraham. He goes on and he says, uh, I'm not just a Hebrew of Hebrews. He says, in regard to the law, I was a Pharisee. Like I took it the most serious. Uh, and, and that was true. I mean, Paul was a rising, a rising star among the Jewish religious leaders. Not only that, he says, as for zeal, persecuting the church. He's like, yo, yo, I, I didn't just live it uh, uh, in, in the things that I did religiously. I, I lived it in my passion. And he goes on, he says, as for righteousness based on the law, I was faultless. Paul was the original dude perfect. <laughs> the kids know what that is. Dude, perfect. I don't get it. Paul was like, look, I did everything. If anybody had a reason to brag and to boast about their accomplishments, it would be me. Stuff that I didn't even have control over, perfect. The stuff that I did have control over, I was perfect. doesn't mean that Paul lived a sinless life. It just means that he went through all of the religious opportunities through Judaism to make sure that he dealt with any sin that he had. He was faultless in how he observed the law. And when he did mess up, he always made sure to give the sacrifices that were necessary. Paul's like, look, if anybody could actually do a brag, if anybody could say, look at me, I'm the one. Before we jump into verse 7, uh, have any of you ever worked 
at an organization or a company where uh, you guys changed systems. Like, like, like maybe it was a, somebody like, oh, all right, like you knew one system, right, and everything seemed to work out that way, and then another system came in, and you couldn't figure it out, it drove you crazy, and, uh, or, or like you maybe worked in accounting, and you thought like that you were doing the numbers correctly, and you didn't realize that it was a negative, not a positive, and you get to the end thinking it's one thing, and it winds up being something totally different. Uh, one of our leadership team members, uh, Eric Joldersma, uh, when he graduated from college, uh, he was given the opportunity to go play pro basketball in France. Uh, Eric and his wife Emily are sometimes up on stage giving announcements. Uh, he's six foot six, sitting right over here. You probably see him out in the lobby welcoming people. Uh, Eric also, at one point in his life, had a 42 inch vertical. All right, when you're 6'6 and you got a really long wingspan and you got a 42 inch vertical leap, all right, you can do some damage on a basketball court, my friends. All right, uh, pretty amazing. His vertical now is 4.2, but at one time it was 42 inches and uh, a dude could dunk like none other. He was given the opportunity uh, to go play ball in France. Uh, now, Eric, uh, if you've ever spent any time with him, you'll know that he's like, charming and witty and funny. He's like the kind of guy that you kind of want to be around. He's an extrovert. He's gregarious, right? People love kind of being around him just because of how he makes people feel and his personality. Like he's just kind of out there and, 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 and fun. And he moved to France and uh, Eric didn't speak a lick of French. And most of his teammates uh, spoke uh, very little English, some a little better than others. But Eric had spent his whole life learning how to be who he was, how God had created him to be, in the English language. And then he moved to France, where he spoke no French, and he literally said he lost his personality for months. You see, instead of being an extrovert, he became an introvert, not because he wanted to be, he just didn't know how to communicate. He couldn't. He didn't know the inside jokes. He didn't understand what was being said. He was having to just live in this place that he wasn't who he was. He said the whole system had changed. Instead of being in the U.S. where people spoke English and he could be funny and witty and, 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 and fun, he now is sitting over here where he can't anymore. The system changed. Now, lucky for Eric, he was really good at playing basketball. And so that allowed him the time to be able to eventually learn. In fact, uh, he was given one of the greatest nicknames of anybody I know. His nickname in France was La Vanille Gorille, the Vanilla Gorilla. Oh, that's so good. That's so good, right? <laughs> Paul says, I had been living life with one set of values, and then I met Jesus, and everything changed. Verse 7. He says, but whatever gains, whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything loss, a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, whose, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, all those things that I could do, Right? All the things that I could control. He says, uh, 
from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Paul's like, look, if anybody could brag, it was me. Yeah, I had done everything right. He's like, but when I met Christ, like everything changed. Like the, the, the whole system got flipped upside down. And all the stuff that I used to think was a credit was actually a debit. If you're an accountant, you know what I mean. If you're like me, you're just like, what? Which one's good? <laughs> Credits are good. Debits are bad. I had to learn that this past week while I was studying. So Paul says the system changed. The system changed. I, uh, I was ch- trying to think about like everything that Paul actually lost. It was a lot. Um, he left a, a lucrative, highly esteemed position had huge perks in his culture. He was seen as a rising star. People looked up to him, even at a young age. All of the, his uh, peers, he was above. All the people that were older than him, that he looked up to, were excited about what he was going to become. And when he met Christ, he had to walk away from that. Now, now, he's not saying that all the things that he did previously were bad, okay? Now, certainly persecuting the church, bad. But like studying the Torah, right? Being passionate about God and for God, like all that stuff was great stuff. There wasn't anything wrong with that stuff. It was just that when he compared it to what it meant to know Christ, he's like, man, it was garbage, it was nothing, like Jesus and Jesus alone. Like, that, that, that's what I want. And so he had to give all that up. So when he gives it up, like, I started thinking about all that it actually meant. He got shunned from the people that had esteemed him. His own culture saw him as basically an outcast. He winds up having to eat crow and go back to all the people that he had been persecuting and be like, yo, my bad. So he had to... Learn true humility. Uh, Not only that, but the folks that used to love him and esteem him now not only hate him, but want him dead. In fact, they have planned on multiple occasions to have him killed. Like, not just like we're going to rough him up and teach him. Like, literally, we're going to kill him. Can you imagine living the next 20 years of your life wondering if people from the city of Grand Rapids were going to find you and kill you? I mean, think about that for a second. Like, all the time he had, to, he had to wonder about that. Bro got beat up. In fact, at one point they thought they had killed him, but he revived and left, wound up in prison on multiple occasions. He's actually writing this letter from prison. We know that the reason he's in prison right now is because after being on his third missionary journey where he's gone around and told other Jews and Gentiles in these Gentile cities all around the Roman Empire that Jesus is actually the real deal and can change your life, transform your life, he actually brings a gift of a large sum of money back to Jerusalem because of the Christian brothers and sisters there that were being persecuted. They were incredibly poor. 
He's collected money at these different churches that he has planted, and he's personally bringing it back, knowing that people in Jerusalem want him dead. In fact, he's actually told that he's going to wind up in prison if he goes back, and he still says, I have to go back. Not only that, but instead of going the fast way back, he actually goes the slow way because he learns of a plan where people from Jerusalem are going to find him in this particular place and have him killed, so he goes a different route. He gets back there. His reputation, of course, has preceded him, and so everybody that's there in Jerusalem is like, oh, that's that dude Paul. He hates the Jewish system, which was totally untrue. He's there with a Greek guy by the name of Trophimus. They see Paul and Trophimus together. Paul, to show that he does not think that the Jewish system is uh, meant to be destroyed, simply that Jesus is supposed to be the one who replaces those things, he goes to the temple to worship, ceremonially cleans himself. While he's in the temple, someone sees him, and they assume that he has brought Trophimus, a Greek man, non-Jew, into the temple and has defiled the temple. Again, totally not true. But the Jewish leaders who want Paul dead, they stir up the city. There's this mob mentality. They come out to look for Paul. You can read about all this in the book of Acts. And uh, uh, the Roman guards hear this huge commotion. They find out that Paul's about to be killed. So they actually take him and say, you can't kill him. He's got to have a trial. So they send him out to Caesarea, about 70 miles away, where he has to stay for two years. Two years. After that time is up, realizing he's never going to get a fair trial, he has to plead to get a trial in Rome with Caesar. Because he's a Roman citizen, he can do that. This is how he gets sent to Rome. This is where he writes this particular letter. We know that about two years later, he's going to be released. We're not exactly sure how long, a couple of years. He's going to get imprisoned again and then beheaded. All for Jesus. All for Jesus. Now, can we be real for just a minute? Paul stands up for God's word, for the Jesus that has given him everything, right? And he winds up in jail, beaten, and ultimately beheaded. And if I'm being real, sometimes I'm afraid to stand up for God's word when, I'm, when I might lose a follower on social media. I think sometimes we're afraid of this faceless culture that's telling us that we might be intolerant or, or, or worse, unloving because we're going to stand up for God's word. Uh, we're often more afraid of the acquaintance that we have who might look down on us and think poorly of us than we're afraid of how Jesus might think about us. Do you consider everything in your life garbage compared to knowing Jesus? Is Jesus really better? Because at the end of the day, I mean, that's kind of what it boils down to. And look, I get it. Like, this isn't super, like, lovey-dovey sermon, right? Like, you're like, oh, I feel like I got a big hug. No, you feel like you're probably getting spanked a little bit right now. Because that's how I felt. I have to ask myself these same questions. Is Jesus enough for me? 
I was uh, talking to the team when we were praying uh, earlier this morning. That when I was driving in, I was asking myself some of these real questions. What, what if Jesus told me I, I was going to pastor a church of 20 people and that's what I was going to do the rest of my life and nobody would ever know about me or know about my name? Or What if I, what if I had to sell my house and, and, and move into a, a, a much smaller place, wasn't as nice, didn't have as many comfort? What if I didn't have even that? Is Jesus enough? Do, do I really think that Jesus is better than everything else? And that's one of the questions that I think every single one of us today has to answer. Is Jesus really better? Look, there's nothing you can do to earn Jesus. Right? It is by grace, through faith, in Christ, period, end of sentence, full stop. But when we have experienced the lavish, undeserved, crazy grace that Jesus bestows on us, it makes us live differently. That we become the covenant people. Jump back with me to verse 3. In verse 3 he says, For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his Spirit. Followers of Jesus serve God through the Spirit. Look, we do this with our lives. It shows up in the ways that we spend our money, in the ways that we spend our time to serve God. It's how we engage in our vocation. Um, <laughs> my, my wife and I, uh, be, before we were even married, um, we're, we're always good about giving 10% of our money. Uh, 10% always goes to, to the church. It's what we do to this day. Um, there's even other money that we give when, when sometimes God uh, tells us to, and, and so it's, I don't know, 12, 15, 13, I don't know, somewhere in that ballpark percent. Uh, but you know what uh, I've been wrestling with lately is I really think that after I give that 10 to the church that the other 90 is mine. And so I, I rarely uh, ask God how I'm supposed to spend all of my money. Uh, when he says we, we serve God by his spirit, I actually think that means that uh, we're, we're talking to the spirit, we're listening to the spirit, we're asking the spirit questions. I couldn't tell you the last time that I had uh, an evening with nothing going on and I said, hey spirit, how would you like me to use this time? Uh, anytime that I get some extra money, like something out of the norm, I, I, I almost never say, God, how do you want me to use this extra money? You know what I start thinking about? Ooh, let me jump on Facebook Marketplace. Followers of Jesus serve God through the Spirit with our lives. We ask the Spirit what we're supposed to do, and we listen to the Spirit, and we obey. Not because it makes us any better in God's economy, in God's system, okay? That's not how we get salvation. But when we get it, we understand that now it means we're going to live differently. It begins to change us. Number two, followers of Jesus boast in Christ Jesus without shame. We boast in Christ. Like we're not afraid to talk about him. We're not afraid to tell people. 
Now, I'm not saying go on social media and every little political thing, like, you're going to try to, like, do the most Jesus-y political thing. I'm just saying when the opportunities arise, okay, and there is a clear teaching of Scripture, don't back down. Don't be ashamed. Don't be afraid to tell somebody that you're a Christian and you go to church and you actually believe that Jesus is the only way and that what God's Word has to say actually matters and it's actually better for you. Whether you believe in Jesus or not, it's still better for you because he created us and he knows how we're supposed to do things. And when we obey that, blessings follow. Like, we got to be people who aren't afraid of that. I am sometimes. I'm working on it. I'm working on it all the time, trying to not be. But friends, we need each other. We need each other for that. The third thing. Followers of Jesus put no confidence in the flesh in our abilities. We are bold to boast in Christ Jesus, but we are humble in who we are. I'll brag on Jesus all day long. I believe Jesus changes lives, transforms lives, is the real deal. I know because I've experienced it myself, and I continue to see it in you guys. But I also know that I am not perfect. I make all kinds of mistakes. I do not always model what Christ is supposed to look like in my life. And so I'll boast in Jesus, but I'm really humble about myself because I know I don't have it all together. Friends, that is the Jesus way. That's how Jesus people look. We serve God by the Spirit, right? We boast in Jesus. We're not afraid to talk about him, and, but we're really humble because we know we don't have it all together ourselves. That's what it looks like. And Paul goes on then in verse 10 after saying, look, man, I'll give it all up. Like, I'll view it as garbage. The whole dream, everything that I used to look forward to, all the stuff, like, I'll set it aside if I can just have Jesus. And he goes to verse 10 and he says this. He says, I want to know Christ. That's my prayer. That's my prayer for you. That's my prayer for me. I want to know Christ. That's end of story right there. He says, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained all this or already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold for that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I don't consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what's behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. I want to know Christ. I want to know Christ. That, that's, that's what I want. That's what I want for you. But, I, but I, can't, I can't make you want it. I always say, like, one of the things that we're passionate about, all right, our mission statement, we're a multiplying church, helping the next generation fall in love with Jesus to create better futures. If I was to boil that down to just a couple of sentences, or a couple of words, I mean, it would just be to fall in love with Jesus. But you want to know what our church is about, what my personal passion in life is about? I want to help people fall in love with Jesus. And I want you to help me to fall in love with Jesus. I want to know Christ. Because if I can get you to do that, if I can get that to be the thing that is the greatest good, the highest value, the thing that you hold up more than anything else, then all the other stuff just follows behind it. And oh, friends, I want that for myself so bad. 
And so I keep praying for it. Jesus, I want you. Help me want you. When I don't want you, make me want you. Do whatever it takes. What would you do? What would you give up, I should say, for a great deal? What would you give up for a great deal? Did you know back in 1867, we bought Alaska from Russia for $7.2 million? It'd be like $120 million today, okay? Uh, some folks estimate Alaska to be worth today uh, two and a half to $5 trillion. Seems like a pretty good deal, right? Uh, Facebook in 2012 bought Instagram for $1 billion. $1 billion. You know what it's worth today? $100 billion. 2011, a guy bought a storage unit that had been foreclosed upon. You've seen storage wars before? All right. Same company. This couple bought this particular unit for $1,000. They found $500,000 worth of ancient Spanish gold. A legit treasure chest. <laughs> that seems like a good value, right? Like you'd give up $1,000 to get that, wouldn't you? My $5 Burberry trench coat kind of pales in comparison to those things, doesn't it? Matthew 13, verses 44, Jesus said this, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Friends, are you willing to give up everything you have for knowing Christ? Receiving Christ will cost you nothing. Following Christ will cost you everything. Knowing Christ is worth anything. So I want us just to take just the next few moments and just sit with God, all right? I want you to talk to God about the things that you are afraid to possibly lose as you follow Jesus. Because it could mean real things. It could mean potential promotions at your job. It could mean some potential friendships if you're going to truly follow Jesus. Uh, it could mean a lot of different things. What are the one or two things you are legit afraid to lose to follow Jesus? Just talk to God about that. Let God bring those things to mind. Just close your eyes right now and talk to him. Jesus, reveal to us what we're most afraid of losing. Now, Jesus, reveal to us, help us see that you are the most valuable thing in our life. And if we have you, we have everything. When I was 15, Jesus captured my heart. And now at 45, 30 years later, I'm 
I'm continuing to ask him to do it again. That's what I want for us as a church, to know Christ, that everything would pale in comparison. Jesus, may that be so of us. We will serve you, God, through your spirit. Jesus, we will boast in you and what you have done. And we will not rely on our own abilities. We will be humble. Thank you for dying on the cross for our sins, for raising back to life, Jesus, just as you promised. Father, thank you for the gift of grace. Jesus, thank you for sending your spirit to continually mold us more and more into your image. For your glory, let it be so. Amen.